Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I don't think people are taking time off work to hit this. <laughs> I, uh, you sent me some video of you dancing around the kitchen. It was amazing. <laughs> Music any white drunk college kid can dance to. I'll just stick with the AI stuff. That's yeah. Rowan said that, not me. My math teacher, like, she doesn't explain it that well well that's the hallucination right that's like ai hallucination we have lives too <laughs> mother shipton's cave rich adam is coming jim harold is coming i'm doing a lot of laughing is it mm-hmm. astonishing legends would like to thank factor our contributors at patreon.com and you our listeners for making tonight's show possible We've covered a lot of strange encounters on Astonishing Legends, and while they're all fascinating, from time to time, we come across some that we just can't seem to get out of our heads. Cisco Grove, Sam the Sandown Clown, the Mothman. The Van Meter Monster is one of those. While reasonably obscure in the annals of folklore, the Van Meter Monster, or Van Meter Visitor, as it was considerably rebranded by author Chad Lewis in 2013, defies all rational explanations. Near the end of September 1903, implement dealer U.G. Griffith came home to Van Meter at 1 a.m. after being on the road for work. With a population of only 900 or so people, he likely thought that no one else would be awake when he arrived, and most nights he would have been right. But on this September 29th, it appeared someone, or some thing, was on the roof of the very familiar Mather and Greg building. It was easy to see because it seemed to have some sort of light or lantern. Was it a burglar? No sooner had his mind formed that thought when suddenly it disappeared and reappeared on the roof of another building across the street. No thief could do that. And then it simply vanished. Griffith went home and went to bed. You might think the story ended there. Just a few unexplainable moments in time. And in some cases, that's precisely how stories like this end. But not this one. It would turn out that what Griffith saw was only the beginning of Five Nights of Terror for Van Meter, Iowa, wherein there would be multiple interactions with a strange nine-foot-tall flying creature that shotguns seemed to have no effect on. A creature with some kind of blunt horn on its head that actually emitted light and only showed itself to the townspeople after dark. Sit back, turn down the lights, and join us as we journey into the shadows of Van Meter, looking for an astonishing legend. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm S.N. Philbrook, and this is F.M. Burgess. Mr. White is a good shot, and he says he took deliberate aim and fired. But instead of killing it, the shot only seemed to waken it up, and instantly its light was turned on him, and it emitted an odor that seemed to stupefy him, and he remembered no more about it. Journalist H.H. Phillips, The Des Moines Daily News, October 4th, 1903. Join us tonight as we search for the Van Meter Monster. And we're back. That we are. Everywhere but Stitcher. Wait, what? Seriously, wait, what? What's going on? Stitcher is kaput.
uh, well, it will be on August 29th, 2023. It got folded into Sirius XM a while back and they're shutting it down. So if you're listening to our mm. show on Stitcher, it's time to move to a new platform. Rest assured, that's a piece of cake, though. Absolutely it is, folks. We're pretty much everywhere you can listen to a podcast, from Spotify to Apple Podcasts to iHeartRadio, Amazon Music. Uh, which makes us available on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Yeah. Alexa, play the podcast Astonishing Legends. Do you think we got anybody with that? You think they? Yeah, they I hope so. I mean, I don't know. Okay. I mean, they're already listening. It might not work, right? But they, and they probably have headphones on. But if we did, it's it's funny. Uh, That's true. Your parrot or your infant can do that. So, <laughs> either way, folks, you can get us on all of those platforms as well as the good old fashioned way of visiting astonishinglegends.com, where each episode of the show has its own built in player and webpage with all of our research links, images to look at, maps, sometimes videos, and books to read on the topic if you're so inclined. Oh, and I, I forgot yeah. to put it in in the housekeeping. We're also on YouTube. Every episode goes to YouTube, every single one of them. Yes. Uh, you can watch it there. It doesn't have video. It's got a little animation. No. Uh, but we're working on some other offerings for YouTube uh, in the not-too-distant future. So No, we've got friends that prefer to listen to podcasts on YouTube. They don't sit there and yeah. stare at the screen for two hours. They just listen to the audio and go about their business. Hey, our animation is pretty mesmerizing. Our little waveforms <laughs> clouds and smoke and if stuff. If you want to trip it. out and look at that while we talk <laughs> for three hours, please be our guests. Uh, but like I said, you could just, uh, it's just an easy way to listen to it. And it's right there. So anyway, to recap, if yeah. Stitcher is your primary podcast aggregator, it's going away on August 29th of 2023. Not just us, but for all podcasts. And you'll lose your listener history in the whole nine yards. So start looking around for a new app now. And then, of course, subscribe to Astonishing Legends and the Midnight Library. Yes, and in other quick news, you can catch us on a crossover appearance with our new MonsterFest 2023 friends, yeah. Spooks, Creeps, and Assorted Devilry, wherever you get your podcasts. We sat down with them a few days ago and chatted about MonsterFest 2023, the Sally House, podcasting in general, and, well, Assorted Devilry. Indeed, the devilry was assorted. And yes, they posted their show to their feed on July 27th, 2023. So look out for that. Oh, and yours truly, yes, on August 7th, 2023. Yet again, I will be on History's Greatest Mysteries in an episode about the Black Dahlia, a subject I've personally been fascinated with since I moved to L.A., and it's sure to grip all of our listeners who are also true crime fanatics. Dude, Morpheus is going to be so mad at how much airtime you're getting over there. <laughs> I told you, I, I yes, I, I've over, I've overshadowed him, and he's going to force me to take a red pill or which, whatever <laughs> yeah, pill you back in uh, keeps you quiet. Yeah. Okay, that one, yes. Yeah. All right, folks, let's head over to Iowa. I feel like this is a state we haven't done a lot on, although I feel like I'm, I might be forgetting. It is home also to the town of Villisca, where something very awful happened. That's right. I, you know, I forgot Villisca was in mm -hmm. Iowa for a minute. Of course, I remember that now. It's old age, folks. It's coming for all of you. It's <laughs> well, coming for all of you. These are major stories. That's what's interesting about covering a story like this. This is a pretty dramatic and major story in a very small, regular little town uh, around the turn of the century in Midwestern America. It's such an American story, but also a global story because uh, these kind of creatures, all weird all manner of weird things have shown up all over the world, of course. But people forget that these kinds of things happened in America. I mean, one, yes, in Villisca, a really horrific, awful, grisly murder that would rival anything you'd see on your most sensational TV shows today. But also a creature appearance 
where, and again, this is why I love this story. It's not just a couple of people, even comparing it to Mothman, where it was a few people here and there, you know, reported throughout the town over a stretch of days. This was seen by pretty much a large part of at least the town's menfolk that went to the, where this thing holed up or where they suspected it would be, and it did appear to them, to battle with this thing and dispatch it to the depths of hell from whence it came. So it was seen by so many people and a lot of prominent people, not as yeah. Chad Nelson says, not just the town drunk. Everybody's, well, I'd always, I'd, yeah. You knew that's where you're going and, and probably where <laughs> yeah. Chad was going. By the way, Chad is one of the authors of uh, one of the books we're leaning on tonight, The Van Meter Visitor, yes. which was co-authored by his friends Noah Voss and Kevin Nelson and has a foreword by Brad Steiger. It's yeah. an amazing book. We highly recommend it if you can find it. Uh, I got a paperback of it off Amazon. It's on Kindle as well, and so look for that, The Van Meter Visitor. Our episode is entitled The Van Meter Monster. We talked a little bit about that in the cold open, but look for The Van Meter Visitor. It's an excellent book, a lot of detail. I just want to say, a lot of times we find a book on a subject and we start looking into it, and we have to do a lot of outside research, which we do anyway, so we can stay independent, mm-hmm. and we did that in this case as well, but Chad is, and his friends here, they're very thorough. They, oh, they yeah. actually have these appendices in the back of the book that are so great with all of the original articles that they could find that were published. And that's really important here because a lot of these articles you cannot find online. And and we know because we have those resources. We looked and looked and looked, and most of them you cannot find online. And that's the first time it's been such a dearth for me, actually, in terms of our digging. Yeah, you know, something that Kevin Lee Nelson says in an interview that we're going to reference here for the timeline and some great inside information, not only about the story and the narrative of it, but just how they were able to acquire the facts is that you have to go there. You can't do this as an armchair researcher. Now, these guys, all three of them, as friends, are paranormal researchers to begin with. When this book appeared, was published in 2013, I believe at that time, Chad had already had about 15 books under his belt. So he's been doing this for a while. And you know that you have to go to these small towns when there's not not a lot of else it's known for. And really talk to the people there and the local historians. And that's what he did with the director of the local library there. And I just want to say something that Kevin Lee Nelson said, too, is that for something so major and weird and freaky about a just a regular average farming town in middle America is that not many people today had remembered it. It didn't get passed down. Some folks did. All the old timers seemed to have heard of it. And, of course, they had mixed opinions. Like, well, it's just a big old hoax, you know reported by so-and-so, and some people believed it was true. That fades away over the generations, even if you grew up there. And so that story, though, it had different takes, but also this is a classic framework of how a legend is born. How yes. one of these things happened is not only the strange event itself and how it appeared, but how people reacted to it. We're seeing this pattern repeat, as in cases with like the Enfield Horror or the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Something really odd happens and people react pretty much the same way and it's not dismissed by things like mass hysteria. What happens is that these things happen, they go away, and they're kind of either remembered or not, but there is some trace of them. But the point here is that you have to go there and really start digging around and asking people and seeing what you can find. And that's what these gentlemen did. And so hats off to them because it's pretty thorough, but also that's backed up with years of paranormal investigation and theories that are compiling throughout the years with what you find. And 
that's all flavored and colored with your knowledge of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's another thing. It's an invaluable service that people like Chad and you know our friend Troy Taylor and these other authors are doing who are so prolific. And also Seth Breedlove is going mm-hmm. out to these communities and getting this information documented because the generations are getting older, people are passing away. And a lot of times this information isn't captured anywhere else. So it's an important part of the chain of custody of the folklore, whether the legend is true or not. And we're always trying to look at, oh, what are the right. explanations is from the fringe to the mundane. But the story is at the core of it. And the story needs to be preserved. And that's what's so great about these books and finding mm-hmm. these articles and the and the research that's been done. So we did want to say our hats off to those guys. And definitely, again, look for the book, The Van Meter Visitor, A True and Mysterious Encounter with the Unknown by Lewis, Voss, and Nelson. Mm-hmm. Not too hard to find. And the other thing we did, you might have heard uh, when I said, uh, welcome back to Astonishing Lines. This is S.N. Philbrook and <laughs> F.M. Burgess. Mm-hmm. We decided that since everybody in Van Meter and probably all around the United States in the early 1900s used their first and second initial for their names. So, yeah, we 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 wanted to get in the vibe there. Yeah. Right. Well, we've been <laughs> seeing that. Uh, that was such a major thing in the turn of the century. I think even with the uh, early on when we covered the... Yeah, to St. Germain. It was Iris Owen. I can't remember. It just, everybody was doing it. And so every time oh, yeah. you get a book. Uh, P.T. Barnum. There you go. <laughs> every time you get somebody, that was just a very common way to introduce yourself. And so, uh, but that's also my, I took a little inspiration from that. That's my Facebook handle, I think, if I remember. Yes, I F. I'm not on there much, but yes. Okay, and so one other thing, we're going to get to the meat of the story. I mean, the cold open has told you a little bit about it, the big picture of this encounter, and we want to talk about that, but it's important to first look at the history. We like to go back in time and look at the town and the setting. So yes, we are consciously burying the lead again. Mm. I know this, folks, but sometimes I see our show, it's on YouTube or somewhere else, and somebody's like... Start at 25 minutes, so yeah, whatever. If you guys want to do that, it's totally fine with us. Just, just This is just the way we do the show. We like to look at the history that, that predates the actual events. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to start with the early history of the Van Meter area, which, of course, predates the establishment of Van Meter, the town. Here's some excerpts on local Native American history, actually, from the University of Iowa in some literature accompanying a cultural exhibition that happened in March of 1991. This is some fascinating information that came off that page. First thing is, first signs of humankind in the area, 11,000 years ago, as Native Americans began to show up there after the glaciers of the Ice Age retreated. 3,000 years ago, the woodland culture appeared in the region, which was more densely populated and had a more complex society than the original cultures. Now, it was dominant for at least 2,000 years, and they were still nomadic hunters who followed game herds for sustenance. About a thousand years after that, or a thousand years ago, an agriculturally dependent culture began to replace the woodland culture, which included the Glenwood and Mill Creek cultures in western Iowa and the Oneota in the east. It's spelled like one O-T-A, O-N-E-O-T-A. No disrespect if I'm mispronouncing it, but the Oneotas were likely directly ancestral to the Iowa Mm -hmm. and the Sioux, which would have been the tribes present when settlers came to the area. I just want to quickly say there is an Iowa legend of large thunderbirds, I believe, that they described as shooting lightning out of their eyes. Okay. That's a very general, broad description of that, but uh, put a pin in that, as they, as the kids say. But there are legends, and even Seth Breed loves small-town monsters, and this is a true small-town monster. They yeah. have covered a, uh, they had a great doc on large Thunderbird-type creatures, which have 
now flown into modern reports, even when carrying off a child and eventually dropping him, thank goodness, but right out of his front yard. So that's a great uh, documentary. Go check that one out. But yeah, these legends of Thunderbirds uh, have persisted for thousands of years, as, as Scott just pointed out. But the IOA specifically, I think that is one of their comments. These things are large, but more notably, it's the lightning or light emanating from the eye's face or as we see here, a blunt horn on the forehead. Right, and the thunder sound was said to have been derived, that name was said to have been derived from the sound of their giant wings flapping, right? Isn't that what that comes from? That's like, one thing I've yeah, heard, but yeah. you never know. Like I said, these are ancient tales passed down orally throughout the generations, and yes, it's a little bit of the telephone game, but as people would say, like, well, you can't take stock in any of it. Well, at the core of it is a giant creature that should not exist. Right. Unless right. you're talking about 500 million years ago. I love those stories. And I've actually wanted to cover Thunderbirds more directly for a while now. So that's definitely something that maybe we can do. Yeah, the, the uh, Garuda. episode. Right. Yeah, the Garuda. I love that stuff. And as a former motorhead, and yes, I'm mellowing out in my old age. And <laughs> looking for yeah. an electric car, everybody. Oh, Hope dear. you're thrilled. But uh, well, <laughs> I will yeah, say- It's going to be a scooter you, first, I think. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah scooter first. But what I was going to say is if you look at the Thunderbird, the fourth Thunderbird, when mm -hmm. it first came out, mm -hmm. the logo, it was literally- a Thunderbird. It yeah. was, you know, of course, appropriated from Native American cultures, but it's a cool, uh, almost an Aztec design of the logo originally for that. And a cool car. Yes, very cool car. Well, uh, many tribes were pushed out in this area by other tribes, and in some cases, and we just mentioned this on a mm -hmm. uh, recent episode, and in some cases with the assistance of the French in violent clashes mm -hmm. and wars, the government forced every single tribe, every single one of them, out of the Iowa region by 1850 resettling them on reservations in Kansas and Oklahoma for the most part. And, and some had left on their own, but most were forced to resettle. Yeah. Now, this is super amazing. I thought this was very fascinating. I don't know how many instances of this there are in the U.S. because I'm not an expert on Native American history. But in 1857, just seven years after they pushed everyone mm -hmm. out, the Meskwaki tribe returned, having bought over 8,600 acres of land along the Iowa River in Tama County, where they've operated independently and controlled their own land since then. Mm -hmm. Now, they had suffered greatly at the hands of the French, particularly in the early 1700s. But the settlement in Tama County has a tribal school, tribal courts, tribal public works, and a tribal police force. And in 2009, there were about 1,300 members of the tribe with 800 living on the settlement. They currently operate a 67,000-square-foot casino with over 400 rooms at a resort there, to help sustain the financial welfare of the tribe. Yeah. They managed to get right back in there, which I think is pretty amazing yeah. in considering all the forces working against them back then and, and, and purchased land. So that's, that's pretty cool. Now, once again, as with all of the North American base legends we cover, we say that the history of humankind in the region, in this case anyway, goes back nearly 11,000 years before the settlers even arrived and the story of Van Meter, the town, even begins. Well, I'll say one thing. There are... As of a few days ago, now more discoveries being made and articles being published that the occupation of these areas may be even thousands of years earlier than that. That's right. Yeah. And I wonder about that, how that relates to the Ice Age and, and the glaciers and what the implications of that are. Well, it gets very curious because what that states is that civilizations, these great, uh, like the mound builders, Cahokia, all of these civilizations may have been much more established earlier than we thought, and what was before them, which may have gotten yeah. wiped out. So, you know, we only know the history that we can scrape off the ground. 
And as we dig deeper, we discover more of it. I always thought this was my first thought about Gobekli Tepe, is that we didn't know about that until... <laughs> Was it the farmer was plowing the fields and scraped what he thought were the tops of uh, headstones? Yeah. And they dug deeper. And before that, you only know, again, what we've dug up. And so now we are saying that's one of the oldest early Neolithic monument structures, but there could be older ones. They're just buried deeper or just at the same level. And we haven't discovered those yet. So it's just, I don't fascinated by this kind of stuff. Yeah. And for listeners who are just joining us, uh, we did do an episode on Gobekli Tepe, actually a series. So look that up. It's spelled G-O-B-E-K-L-I mm-hmm. and then T-E-P-E. But check it out. It is super interesting, especially if you're into archaeology. Right. And the way it connects here is that we're back to a hole in the ground that's mysterious and and burping up all kinds of strange things like Tsurichina, like Mel's Hole, like uh, Huska Castle. What's under the dirt and rocks and buried deep in the earth has always been mysterious and also very much connected, as we talked about, uh, tied to Native American lore in that there's a mysterious element that uh, once came from the depths of the earth, battled it out with human beings, didn't like us, went back in. And they may pop out again here and there, time after time, to have some interaction with us, which that could be interpreted in this case. All right. To paraphrase an old I Love Lucy episode, <laughs> do you pop out at parties? Look that up. That's all right. That's, right. that's the Vitamina Vegemin episode. It's, it's ah, comedy gold. Classic. Uh, but in that vein, though, and that's not a tangent. It sounds like a really horrible dad joke. But like when you come back around to what Forrest is saying, it's also Kelly Hopkinsville. It's yes. also a lot of the ideas behind Hellier and all the information Hellier. that uh, yes. instigates that whole series. So just a lot of things are connected here. Everything is connected when you look at the big yep. picture between the Thunderbirds and the Garuda and the things coming out and going back into holes and even the Pied Piper supposedly disappeared into a mountain and we did a series on that yeah. too, so check yep. that out. But let's come back around to Van Meter. It's got an interesting history. We dug up an article. This is actually off the Van Meter cities website there they have a historical section there that is unbelievable with a lot of really really amazing photographs a lot of the same ones that uh lewis voss and nelson use in their book van yeah, visitor yeah. and some additional ones and uh, uh, photographs of documents so if you wind up being into the history of the area or you want to see more about it i definitely would recommend that site so anyway, their website is a great resource for really getting down into the pictures and looking these people in the eye in these photographs. It makes you feel strange, especially once you immerse yourself in a story like this. Yes. Uh, we were talking a little bit about, you know, trying to remember that these are human beings. What was it like for them? And there's a lot of photos that, honestly, they look like very contemporary selfies in a way. I mean, they're not selfies because there's a photographer, but people are <laughs> posing. There's one guy who's yeah. got his hands way up high on his on his lapels. And it's almost like, you know, not a lot has changed. The clothes are different, but attitudes of people, hey, I'm being photographed. Look at me. You know, just there's, there's a lot of that. Yes. Yeah. There's pose instead of doing the, uh, the leg kick or the arm extended, doing the self. Imagine doing a selfie back then. You got an eight by 10 camera that's 30 pounds and then you've got the, uh, the tray with the flash powder in it. Yeah. Alternating. <laughs> and you have to hold it still for 30 seconds. Still, well, that's also why the, uh, <laughs> Because Scott and I were commenting that some of the faces look like people you would know today, and then others yeah. look like real old relatives or from faces past, let's say. there. I always believe in facial templates, and some people have old, tiny-looking faces, and some people have yeah. more modern looks, and these some of these look like, yeah, like I said, people that j- you would see today or people you know currently, and then some don't. They look antiquated in a way, and just the fashions that they were wearing, but people all kind of do the same thing. The other thing is that the some of the eyes look strange, and you have to remember that 
it was probably a very long exposure, not as much as, let's say, in the uh, Matthew Brady days of the 1860s, 70s, but just not long after. So you have to yeah. hold a long exposure and people were blinking. So if you blinked yeah. or you moved your eyes, that might look strange. And that's why everybody looks stiff and not smiling in a lot of photos. There was even a device, I think, that was a, a bit of a metal brace that they would put on the backs of people's heads on their yeah. necks at the base of their skull to keep their heads from moving. Because if you did, that ruined the photo. Yeah, and that's like, just like that feeling you get when you're doing your school pictures or, or going to Olin Mills yeah. back in the day for a family portrait and the, and the photographer comes in and tilts your head at this insanely unnatural <laughs> angle. Yeah. And then, you know, it's amazing because you get a super creepy, weird picture. And they got your, you got your fingers under your chin, which we'd never yeah. do in real life. Nobody poses no. like that, but you do in photos. But these looks that Scott's describing in some of these other photos We'll try and have some on the website. I'm not sure if they're all available for public domain usage. No, I, I'm pretty sure they are. I think okay. since the city hasn't posted, they're sharing them on a historical page. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that we'll be fine to share those. Yeah. But we'll send a link where they all are too as well. Though. Right. We'll give you can go search them on your own. What I would say when Scott and I were looking at these, you can smell the photos. And it means like if you ever grew up, you know, near a farm or a barn that your family had and yeah. just the smell of uh, the motor oil and the implements and the uh, the hay. There's something very real about this. And it's not yeah, just some, this metal. is a crazy story, but these are real people, people that obviously had families and that generationally they're recorded and they grew up and they lived in the same area and they moved, some moved away and some started businesses. And, and that's what we're talking about here is that these are prominent people in this town in 1903. This is Claire. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Anyway, we wanted to look back on the history of the town, how it came to be known as Van Meter and uh, the founders, because that background gives us all a bigger picture of what this place was really like, in addition to the photos, which obviously you can't see on an audio version of the podcast. Mm -hmm. So we have this article that came off the website for the city that we were just mentioning. The headline's a little cut off, so we can't do a proper attribution to where this article came from. We did look for it online so that we could cite it properly, but we couldn't find it. Uh, part of the headline says Van Meter was, and then underneath it, it says Pioneer Miller, mm -hmm. and then there's a semicolon star, which probably means started. And when it says Miller, it's talking about a grist mill. Yes, a grain miller, right. right. Yeah, a grain miller. So we're going to share that article with you now. The headline, uh, the subheadlines say, town established on land owned by man who built first cabin. And uh, mm -hmm. by the way, if you guys go to Google Earth or Google Maps, as you know I love to do, and you look up Van Meter and you look at the Raccoon River, where uh, the river forks, and it's got a nice little area there where it makes almost like a little bell shape. I'm pretty sure that's where the first cabin was, that the town was established, and that's yes. where it all started. And it's not far from where the whole story takes place, really, which, once again, here we are at a river, which, of course, we're at rivers because people go to rivers because you need water to live in agriculture and all that sort of thing. Powers the mills. It, it's good yes. to have flowing water nearby. It's it's a free energy source. The next subheadline says, mine flourished for many years. And after that, it says, came into existence soon after the building of the Rock Island Railroad. So again, it was hard to do an attribution on this, but based mm -hmm. on some of the dates in it and everything, we think it was probably written in, uh, in the late 1940s or maybe early 50s. So I can tell uh, by the font a little. Yeah. <laughs> and you <laughs> yeah. can tell by the wording. That's right. All right. Well, here's the body of the article. The town of Van Meter, named after one of the pioneer millers of the county, who was also one of the community leaders, 
was founded in 1869, a few months after the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railway Company laid their rails through Dallas County on the way to the West Iowa border. Jacob R. Van Meter was the man for whom the town was named, and for many years members of the Van Meter family were prominent, not only in the town, but in other parts of South Dallas County. They were millers, extensive landowners, and interested in many other forms of business. The name Tracy was first selected for the town, but was changed soon afterward in honor of Mr. Van Meter. The town was laid out some 79 years ago on land that had been entered from the government by a settler named Wilson. He had built a cabin and had started clearing the land for agricultural purposes, but evidently sold out, as his name does not appear in any of the early histories of the county. The name of W.H.B. Wilson is mentioned as the first postmaster of the town, but that was 10 years later. E.D. Smith operated the first store in Van Meter, carrying a mixed stock of goods. So the next paragraph that follows that is just uh, some names of the community leaders at the time. And again, a lot of first two initials and then a surname. <laughs> yeah, everybody. Right. Well, the, yeah, you, you knew who they were. Look, so if you're from the area, you knew who they were. We don't, so we're, we're spelling these out. But you're going to recognize some names that pop up that are crucial to this story. But so skipping down a little bit here, the first schoolhouse was built about 1870. It was a two-room frame structure, and the teachers employed were J.F. Curran and Miss Hoover. Two churches, the United Brethren and the Methodist, were among the first religious organizations formed. A historian in 1879 says, quote, The town has no lawyers and no saloons. Rather singular coincidence, especially for a mining town. But the people are generally prosperous and peaceable and go forward industriously in the even tenor of their ways, end quote. Okay, so then proceeding on is some more names of proprietors in the town and their uh, first and middle initials and last names. It's not a very big town, so you would know everybody here because if you want to go, uh, you need to go to the blacksmith. It's the one dude. If you need a physician, there's only a couple of them. And uh, Carpenter, same thing, boarding houses, flouring mill. It's This is small town Americana. This is how it all started here in America, folks. But going down to uh, the last part of the article that's visible for us, talks a little bit about the coal mine, which is important because that is the home, apparently, of the monster or its last refuge. So this is the section of the article subtitled, Coal Mine Brings Boom. Van Meter's first big growth came in 1878 when a coal mine was operated by Mr. Boag and Van Meter. A shaft, 257 feet deep, was sunk at a spot a short distance northwest of the present town. It was about 30 rods from the town limits and about the same distance south of the main Raccoon River, just below the forks. The vein of coal was from two and a half to four feet in thickness and of fine quality. As the vein was worked northward, it increased in thickness Soon after being started, the mine was sold to the Chicago and Van Meter Coal Company. J.L. Platt was president. John Walker, superintendent. And then it's a bunch of names who own the, uh, who own the, uh, <laughs> the, the going concern there. But the idea is that it was a pretty successful coal mine, very rich, also rich in clay, which I think gave birth to the, the brickyards and the tile factory that was nearby, which remnants of you can still see to this day, but they're horribly decrepit and broken down and are just ruins. But that was the going concern there. And I think the younger generations, even today, call that the brickyards, that area there. 
Classic again, just like Atchison being right next to the river and all these haunted places, water is there and is of prominence. And even Chad Lewis was saying that it may have to do with a confluence of geographical features. Because again, remember in Atchison, it's the limestone, the limestone caves, weird stuff's in the caves. It has to do with the geography, the minerals, the water, all this stuff happening. Ley lines, probably, I don't know. So, you know, oh, the natural features. Happening. It takes yeah. us right back to Skinwalker Ranch. There's all kinds of unusual natural features in the area. And so, more and more and more, that seems like something that's happening. And again, I'll, I'll go back to when I said a minute ago, oh, look, it's by a river again, because we always talk mm-hmm. about rivers and travel and roads. And as Forrest said, ley lines and when you yeah. think about the Mothman and intersections that go back to traffic, that's human traffic that's been yeah. going by for thousands of years. Archer Avenue, Resurrection Mary. Exactly. It pops up all the time. Yeah, it really does. And here's what's interesting about this too. As I, could tr- I didn't really understand fully, and I'm conjecturing here, and I might be completely wrong and historians can reach out to me on this. But one of the problems with land, especially farmland that's near a river, is that it's very damp. And you had the same kind of problems that you had in the Great Meadow in our last episode that we were just talking about. When you have irrigation or you want to drain the land. Mm -hmm. And so here is another, um, there was an image of an ad for the brick and tile company, which was run by, I think, Platt Jr. Mm -hmm. Not the Platt that ran the coal mine, but the Sun, right? J.L. Platt Jr. And this was an ad that they have scanned, again, on the Van Meter Historical website. I just want to share this with our listeners real quick. Drain your farm or it will drain you. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a poem. Get ready. I am only a whole and an humble vocation, yet I greatly control your civilization. I am very tenacious and hard as a stone, and I am like Horatius in holding my own. So lay me down, keeping me straight in the ditch, and while you are sleeping, I'll be making you rich. And here's my great beauty. I am always on duty, out of reach of the bulls and the bears. Those are in quotes for some reason. Mm. And when you're in your grave, I'll continue to slave for your children, their children, and theirs. If your land is too wet and you're burdened with debt and encumbrance begins to accrue, obey nature's law by removing the cause. Drain your farm or it will drain you. Most farmers lament the money they've spent for things only meant to beguile. But never as yet did a farmer regret the money expended for tile. <laughs> and then it says, buy your tile in the best yeah. trading point in Iowa. Van Meter, of course. Wow. Platt Brothers Van Meter. That is like a, a primordial schoolhouse rock that didn't, yeah. didn't take off. I'm and it's a, <laughs> no, but hey, hell. it might have. Just yeah. <laughs> uh, well, people had, certainly had a different idea about marketing and advertising back then, and it would appeal to... Uh, <laughs> to your uh, poetic mm, sensibilities, I I would say. But it was an idea, though, you could turn, yeah, you had to make an expense, but you could turn that unusable land into something worthwhile. And here, it was pretty bearable farmland. Right. And how do you prevent erosion if you're trying to irrigate or create, you create a ditch, you're going to have to constantly be working on it to keep it from uh, collapsing in on itself or whatever. You put this tile in, and the ditch is going to last forever, and yeah. that's the whole point. And then your farmland is safe even long after you die. Right. I mean, I got, yeah, it's a good ad. I knew what they were selling <laughs> after they were done. Or you can do the reverse, like uh, the two gentlemen in the Ghost Lake area who flooded the, uh, that's a man-made, more of a glorified pond, but it was man-made as a little bit of a reservoir. And yeah. then 
people start throwing all kinds of things into it, like bodies. Or right. it was just naturally uh, erected, flooded over people who are already there buried in the ground. So a lot of stuff's happened in layers, and that's what you have here. And when you're talking about tens of thousands of years of occupation, the history is rich inside and out and under the ground. And that lays rise to perhaps some very strange creatures popping out. Well, you might have heard uh, Forrest mention, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but hey, that's uh, what we're known for, or at least we used to be. Mm. We got better about it. But this, I thought this was pretty fascinating. In that article, they said, oh, the town was called Tracy, but they renamed it in the honor of Mr. Van Meter. I was like, well, who was poor Tracy, right? Well, maybe not so poor. We think it may have been named by the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Rail Co. for John F. Tracy, mm -hmm. who was the president of the railroad from 1866 to 1877. At one point, he was actually president of two railroads at the same time. He was considered one of the fathers of the American railway system. He built the first railroad bridge across the Mississippi River. He died in 1878 at just 51 years old. Now, we're not positive, uh, Tracy, the town mm -hmm. that Van Meter was, was named for him, but we feel pretty sure. There's actually still a Tracy Avenue there. But when Van Meter came along, they renamed it in his honor, and poor Tracy had passed away, so there wasn't a whole lot he had uh, to say about it, I guess. Well, again, it's a little bit like the naming of the area, getting back to Ghost Lake and Jenny yeah. Jump and all that, and who owns what, who's prominent at the time, and who comes in with the first name and what it gets settled on. And yeah. uh, in that story, right, it was the... Uh, uh, the railroad, the railroad again. yeah again where he's yeah. like nah we're not going with that name we're gonna name it this and it's like okay yeah we're putting the right. tracks down we get to say i'm naming this after my best buddy todd i played poker with last <laughs> night or just you grand know, prairie in my fancy train car yeah, yeah so grand prairie whatever it is but it, that's prairie, yeah. that's how things stick this beast really had no name i mean i guess didn't have a name didn't have a name so <laughs> it's just the van which also makes thing. it very hard to search newspaper right. archive you know you got you're looking up winged monster event you can't it's very hard to find information on it yeah. right so here you get chad lewis coming along writing a book that was very much needed i think not right. only for this town history but for the enjoyment and edification of us all but calling it the visitor because we don't know its intention Right. And so he wanted to soften it. It's like, all right, I mean, I know monster and creature and thing. It's all very flashy, but really it's, it was a strange visitor. So, <laughs> yeah. And who knows? We may have been intruding upon its territory. So for thousands of years to call it the uh, the Van Meter intruder. Yeah. So which, again, sounds pretty uh, flashy. But in this case, it's the visitor. So. Whoever writes the history gets to name the stuff. Yeah, and Chad is the one that renamed it Visitor from Monster. We went with Monster because we wanted to catch your attention. Yeah, it is But catchy. it is yeah. Van Meter Visitor. He renamed it that, and that, that is attributed to him, even though he had two co-authors on the book. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about the different sections they worked on in their book later. So let's talk a little bit about this time period. We're getting closer to uh, the actual series of events. <laughs> Scott does love to do his, and that's the year that was. I do love to do that, but to mm, my credit, I, I will say that, uh, again, in the Van Meter Visitor, Noah Voss did a timeline, too. Mm -hmm, I got mm -hmm. some of this data from them. I also did some independent research on this. So first thing, uh, one of the things that they mentioned that I thought was fascinating was in 1903, mm -hmm. and this was a big year. There was a lot happening in 1903. Yeah. Crayola made its first box of crowns, Ooh. which had eight colors in it. And uh, I think they were in Pennsylvania because I went to a factory when I lived over that way, not too far from where the Mantis men were right. seen. That was a Crayola plant. That might be the first one. I didn't look that up, but I think that's where they, they came out of. Mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt was the president yes. at the time, 1903. Mm -hmm. 
Maggie Walker, thought this was fascinating, chartered the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank in Richmond, Virginia, Mm -hmm. which made her the first African-American woman to charter a bank and also the first to serve as a bank president. She promoted black economic development with it and shepherded it through the Great Depression, even absorbing two smaller banks during that time. Now, former that bank was black-owned until 2009 when it merged with a larger institution. So that, I thought that was pretty amazing. Yeah. I had no idea about that. For my New Yorkers, as a former New Yorker, <laughs> both the Williamsburg Bridge and the Queensboro Bridge opened in 1903. And sadly, for everyone listening, Coca-Cola took the nine milligrams of cocaine they mm. had in every serving of Coke out in 1903. And they a little less pep like, was we, in your step after Yeah, that. they were like, we got our market share. It's just like any classic <laughs> drug dealer. Give it to you for free well, to start with. Hey, you know, this is pointed out also in the book and other articles, is that during that era, it was is relatively new and, you know, there was more sophistication coming along. But yeah. still, it was still the era of spiritualism World War I had not yet happened, so it didn't blossom where we experienced tremendous loss. We're coming out of the era called the gay 90s when things were, it's after the Civil War, which is horrible, but we're starting to rebuild. People are coming back. It's a time of renewal, and it's at a little bit of quiet, perhaps. However, there were conflicts going on, as we will see later, the Spanish-American War was around this time. And so there's always war, folks, but in this case here... It was right before some major horrible things were coming down the pike. And so people could breathe and kind of get their get their bearings. More things were wondrous and believed, which is maybe why the story flourished. The other thing I want to say before you forget is that this story did go national to a degree. Articles in New York City, speaking of which, were covering this a little bit. So it did get out there, but people are like, why, what do you do with that? That's, that's weird. What are those folks up to? Which is also, again, a reason for people to say like, well, they just made the whole thing up for publicity. This is not the kind of publicity you want back then. Right. Because people thought you were really just off your rocker, drunk or drinking too much Coca-Cola. Yeah. There's not a lot going on with festivals, trying to get people to come to your town to see the UFO that crashed or whatever. There's none of that. That, that wasn't, wasn't a, thing a touristy thing yet. And yeah. I would say much more, you could point to other cases, but not here. And generally during this time, as we've seen with Edgar Casey, your reputation back then was of great importance. We saw that also with the Watsika Wonder. We're putting this all together for you about the how people felt back then and what would they be likely doing. And certainly you had fakesters and fraudsters and carpetbaggers of all sorts. That's never going to change. But this would be a town full of the town leaders who were all in on this if that were the case. And that doesn't seem to be it. But going on, here again, this is a, a major turning point in American history. It, it's got its list here. The first Model A Ford is sold in July. Hats off to Mr. Yeah. Ford. By the way, the Model A, folks, for those of you who don't know, when you're looking back, you, you generally you think, oh, it's an old-timey Ford. You're thinking of the Model T. Yes. The Model A <laughs> looks like a horseless carriage. That's yes. really what it is. It's like a little carriage. There, I think they only made a, a couple, th- two or 3,000 of them or whatever. Those You don't see those so often out driving around. And finally, in December, not too long after the Van Meter visitor mm-hmm. showed up in Van Meter, formerly Tracy, Iowa, the Wright brothers made their first famous flight at Kitty Hawk. Right. And for those who was first snobs, because I know there's a lot of controversy around this, mm-hmm. this is the official description of that flight. Quote, the first documented successful, controlled, powered, 
heavier than air flight, end quote. And, and the only reason I know there's a controversy is because right. one of the choices for a North Carolina license plate says first in flight. Right. And I believe Vermont or somebody else is mad about that because something <laughs> else happened. I'm not really sure. I'm not yeah. going to take it up here. But that's why I, I wanted to spell that out. First documented successful controlled powered heavier than air flight. Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. It's not the thing with the 21 biplane wings or the, the tw- <laughs> biplane meaning two. It's not. Yeah. Or the uh, or the <laughs> hopping parachute umbrella yeah, those, thing. No, those did not yeah. count. They did not count. They did not succeed. So. Well, let's let's get into the timeline of the actual incident. And for those of you on YouTube and wherever else you're listening to this and you're angry about all that lead up, now is when you can make your marker oh. for when the story is starting, the story that we mentioned in the cold. Well, open. we already blew the storytelling you there was a monster and it freaked people yeah, out we did. over several there was a nights. Monster. Yeah. But there's a monster at happened. the end of this tangent. Yes, <laughs> That's how <also>. nice. That's <laughs> how this unfolds though. In a classic way of most monsters, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, all these things that appear in these weird small towns, uh, the big muddy monster, Momo, all these things uh, happening kind of unfold the same way in that, yeah, it has to make an appearance. But what's strange about this story is how many people it appeared to and yes. how, and also how consistently that was another Yeah, the author. descriptions. Well, not just the descriptions, but the time. Oh, yeah, and the, yeah, and the time. Yes, that's time, right. So we're going to look at this timeline here. Again, this is a timeline that uh, Noah worked up, Noah Voss worked up in the Van Meter Visitor. Uh, we've done some additional outside research to add a little something more to it as well. But uh, this can be traced mm-hmm. back to the newspaper articles, which are available in some places online. That uh, mm-hmm. and, and most specifically, one particular article in the Des Moines Daily News from October 4th, 1903. That's the article that a lot of stuff came from. And we'll get into more of this in part two, but the article was then taken and rebutted and reprinted with mistakes. And and those reprints that were downstream of the initial article are the ones that went uh, viral, for lack of a better word, and got printed all over the country back then. And they had mistakes in them. So we're trying to stick with the source, which was an article by H.H. Phillips, and I'm speaking as S.N. Philbrook here, (laughs) H.H. Phillips wrote this initial article, and that's what a lot of the book, The Van Meter Visitor, is based on. And then other people seem to be basing most of their work on the book that Lewis Voss and Nelson wrote, because that's what you see being written about on all Mm -hmm. the blogs and and websites about this. I will give my hats off to the Kryptonaut guys who did cover this. I may allude to them earlier. They're they're friends of ours where uh, Rob Murphy has been on the show and uh, also done some writing for us in the past. And right. he, just a uh, great group of guys over there. But they, they were saying that they didn't get a chance to read the book, which uh, is fascinating because they still were able to piece together a lot of data. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is all about. So September 29th, 1903 is when everything began to unfold with the Van Meter monster. Okay, we're going to call him that for now. Mm. And then, so the very first person to see the Van Meter monster was Ulysses G. or U.G. Griffith. And he was part owner of the Griffith Brothers Implement Company, which was about two years old as of 1903, that he had started with his brother, David Griffith. And one of the many really cool pictures that we found on the uh, city's uh, historical website is inside of their warehouse or, or, or space where they have the implements. And this is really funny. And Forrest, I, I do want to talk about this a mm-hmm. little bit with you. But in that picture, which you saw, you can see them in there. It does not have Yuli Griffith in it. We did find a portrait of him by himself, aside from the bachelor shot, which is uh, the famous image that has a bunch of them, or well, famous for this story anyway. You'll see that on our website, and you've seen it in 
Lewis Voss and Nelson's book, you'll see it pretty much everywhere. It's different shots. You'll see their heads will be cut out of that, of all the witnesses, because they're all in the shot together, or a couple of them are, I should mm-hmm. say, two or three of them. But outside of that shot, there's a separate portrait of Yuli Griffith, which is very cool. He's got a big mustache and when he was older. And then there's another picture on the site that shows the inside of the implement business. And you can see David, D.T. Griffith, his brother, sitting there with a couple of younger workers. And of course, I heard that Rob and the guys on Kryptonaut were joking really hard about this. They're like, what is an implement? And of course they knew, but they were having some fun Uh, with it. But why don't you tell our listeners, like, what does that mean? Because you were talking to me a little bit about... Weren't you talking about, was it your grandfather that used to have to assemble, not only do sales, but like arrive and assemble things for farmers? As far as I know, it was farm implements. And the deal was back then is that you, as a farmer, and this would have been the the Palouse area of Washington State, uh, where they grew all the wheat. And if you've seen uh, the movie Toys with Robin Williams... I, well, yeah, I'm probably the only one that saw it. I, I'm not <laughs> sure I've seen weird. the whole thing, if I have. It, it, <laughs> there is a very dreamlike area where it's very rolling it's green uh, hills of green grains. Well, that's wheat, juvenile wheat or young wheat uh, when it's still green before it's turned that lovely shade of golden brown. Well, very dreamy, but also remember yeah. the old Microsoft screensaver where it was the rolling green hills? Yes, I believe exactly that's also the like. Palouse. And reeling this back into where it's somewhat <laughs> relevant is the idea that my grandfather and his stepfather, my great grandfather, worked for Mitchell. And I can't remember if it was Mitchell and Brothers, it's a very old company, but they sold farm implementation, like John Deere, one of the early manufacturers. Yeah. Actually, that was the company that the father in the Velisca story was a dealer of John Deere and you wanted to have that dealership because it uh, it meant you made a lot of money or pretty good money selling all the farm equipment to the local farmers there. Right. In this case, you would buy something as a farmer. Well, it didn't arrive off of a flatbed truck all assembled. It arrived in large components. And so my grandfather, when he was a young man, they would go out to farms and deliver the stuff and put it together for the farmer. Okay. So it was very hot work. I just were thinking how hot it was there. He said uh, you would have to have a bucket and put the tools in because the, the tools would get so hot you couldn't touch them. Oh my so yeah, you're out in the hot sun putting this stuff together. It was very hard work, but that's what they did. And so when you would buy something from Mitchell, they would go out, uh, whether it was a combine or whatever it was, something pulled behind a tractor, a plow, whatever, they would assemble it. And then uh, that's part of the service and dealership aspect of it. So that would be farm implements here. But it, what Griffith also had was a hardware store. So it was all in one. That's you had right. implements, hardware. If you look at the old building there, one thing you notice that is a photo that is a composite. Actually, it's pretty cool because it's a an actual vintage photo of the building owned by O.V. White. And on the side, it says hardware, furniture, carpets, Queensware. I have the goods to show you. So that's the sales sign on the side of the building. And there's an artist interpretation of the monster on top of that building with a light shining from its head. It's pretty cool. That's the cover of the book, The Van Meter Visitor, True and Mysterious Encounter with the Unknown by our friends we haven't met yet, Lewis, Boss, and Nelson. But the idea there is that you sold a bunch of different things because it's a small town. They don't have stores for everything. So somebody would sell multiple things. But anyway, as far as implements go, That's what was going on. And being as that was a farming town, essentially, you end up knowing everybody in town. And that's one of my points here is that if you're going to make an outrageous claim, everybody's going to know who did it, who you are, and you're going to be known for that forever. 
Yeah, and I want to read a little excerpt actually from the Van Meter Visitor about uh, Yuli Griffith. Mm-hmm. According to the book Past and Present Dallas County, Griffith was, quote, numbered among the leading men of Van Meter, both socially and in a business way, and was uniformly respected, for he possessed many good qualities that endured with those whom he came in contact, end quote. Griffith also served on the Village Council, was a proud member of the Masonic Lodge, and modern woodmen. Historians claim that his business integrity was unquestioned, and this is quoted again, and he has a kindly and considerate spirit, which was mm-hmm. manifest in geniality and deference for the opinions of others, end quote. By all accounts, Griffith was a well-respected member of the community who, quote, could, the community looked upon as a citizen that it could ill afford to lose, mm-hmm. end quote. So there you go. And the modern woodman, where does that come up before on our show? We talked about the modern woodman. Turns out Edgar Casey's dad was mm-hmm, a salesperson mm-hmm. for the modern woodman and actually enlisted him to do that for a minute because the modern woodman started out as a fraternal organization, a secret organization, I believe, and evolved into what today is a huge insurance company, yeah. a going concern. So, but initially, Forrest, you were talking about how their logo was, or not their logo, but what was associated with them was the symbolism of a stump because the woodman, I remember, I think, reading that the idea was that they came and they cleared the land to establish, you know, a new homestead or a new Mm -hmm. farm or a new whatever. So they were the modern woodmen. It was just another one of those things like the Masons. But the other thing is it was started in Iowa. That organization Mm -hmm. started Mm -hmm. in Iowa. So it fits that people of stature in Iowa were joining it because it started right there in Iowa. Well, it's a lot like many other fraternal organizations in these small towns as well. It's a social order. It's a business connection, networking kind of thing. As Tess pointed out in one of her blogs about, I think it was called Messages from the Other Side, as it's represented in tombstones of people in the town, you can read a lot into that, who did what and what it meant to them at the time. And so sometimes a headstone might be fashioned as a stump or part of a tree, and your inscription for the headstone would go on the front of it on a flat side. If it was a square stone, it could represent a Masonic burial. If it was an anchor, it was somebody seafaring. So tombstones have a lot of messages about the family and the people that lived in the town at the time. That's right. And anyway, that was the point of her blog entry on our website is that you can read a little bit into that and it all means something. So here, it's like with the Odd Fellows. That's a very old organization. If you're part of that, your headstone could be a link of three uh, of chain links. Uh, that is their symbol, linking everything right. and people together. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors, and so do I. I'm Jim. Now back to the show. So U.G. Griffith was coming back from a long day of work. He's arriving back in Van Meter at one in the morning, coming into town. Most folks are asleep. We talked about this a little bit in the cold open. This was the initial sighting. He gets there, and he looks up on the roof of the Mather and Greg building. And I'm very interested in the Greg part of the Mather and Greg building. We'll talk about that here in a little bit, but it's Greg, G-R-E-G-G. I don't understand whether or not that was the name of the building, and we actually have a call into uh, the library there to find that out, and hopefully we'll get that figured out by part two. But whether that was the actual name of the building or it was named that because of the people that were in it, like Sidney Gregg, who we'll be talking about here shortly, who had a business in there. So anyway, he comes in the town at one in the morning after a long day's work. Everyone is probably asleep. The population at the time was a little bit under a thousand people, we think. And he looks up onto the roof of this building and he sees a light up there and he can't figure out what is who is up on the roof of the Mather and Greg building and what is that light? 
and he's looking at it and trying to get closer. He thinks, oh, well, this maybe this is a burglar. And as he's trying to ascertain what it is, it vanishes, and then it reappears on a roof of another building across the street. And at that point, he apparently decides, well, it's not a burglar, whatever it is. It's something strange. It's late. He's been working. He probably doesn't feel like it's an imminent threat. He's just like, well, that's strange. I can't tell what it is. And as he's studying it in the second location, it vanishes completely. It just disappears. Light turns off and it vanishes. And so what's he going to do about it at this point? He goes home and he goes to bed. But he, of course, is thinking about it because the next day he decides to get up and tell the town about it. And again, Griffith, a prominent member of the community, has to implement business and the hardware store with his brother. He is a respected individual. And so when he says that he saw this thing, he is, as Forrest alluded to a little bit earlier, he's putting his reputation on the line to a certain degree. I mean, for him, all he describes is, well, you know what? I saw a light. I saw a light, looked like something was holding it on the roof of this one building. Then suddenly it appeared on another building across the street and then it vanished. Mm -hmm. He's not totally putting himself out there in terms of wacky claims, but he is saying, I did see something unusual. What alerted him, of course, the first thing you see when you see a figure yeah. And to him, it's not anything that you would think is, is just a giant owl or something. It's got a light. So, you're well, what's somebody doing on the t roof of a building with a light at that hour where in a small t farming town like that, everyone's asleep at one in the morning, unless you're coming home or you got some business or you've got insomnia. But most people are asleep in their beds and it's dark. And again, we talked about this. I'm going to make some references here to Villisca. Yes, of course, because it paints the picture of another small town in Iowa in that not everybody had electricity. So somehow this is some kind of lantern, possibly battery operated, but you have no business being up there. So that was his first thought, not it's a winged creature. And then what happens is that it leaps to another building rooftop, which uh, unless you're in the matrix, you're Batman, that's not natural. So that just gave him pause. Like, what was that? That was odd. And so it's nothing that outlandish yet. And that's why the next morning he tells some folks that he knows. And as we talked about before, when you get up in the morning and people, you know, there's no TV. So you got to gab uh, what the latest happenings with your fellow townsfolk. And that's what's happening here. So it's nothing outrageous. It's just an unusual sighting by... <laughs> either spring-heeled Jack, somebody very athletic, but obviously he saw a figure with a light on it. And that figures in prominently because that's the attitude, at least at first, going in with the rest of the townsfolk here. So the next day, September 30th, 1903, this is when we get the first interaction with whatever this thing is. Mm -hmm. This interaction happens with Dr. Alcott, which is uh, stated in the newspaper articles. It's mentioned in the Van Meter Visitor. We actually managed to do a little bit of digging on him to determine more about his background and make sure we were looking at an accurate person. And what I was able to find was that Dr. Alcott, or Fred Alcott, was born in January 1878. Mm -hmm. As of 1910, when this happened, he had been married six years. He had married in 1904, one year after the incident, to his wife Carrie at the age of 26. He was 26. He is listed, and we confirm this on a census, as a general practitioner, as a physician. So this is a real person, and he is mm -hmm. definitely a doctor and a physician in this town. Dr. Alcott. In 1910, he had three kids, Carol, Hollis, and Keith, who were ages eight, six, and two. Keep this in mind. Griffith came outside, yelled at the, like, who, who is up there? You with the light, right. stop that. You're annoying me. So he then sees this thing leap and disappear. Like, again, that's kind of weird. He's pretty alarmed. So he starts telling people about it. 
Now, on the next night, also around 1 a.m., somehow 1 a.m. is significant, the town's doctor, Scott said, Dr. Alcott, was awoken by a bright light shining on his face through a window of his office where he was sleeping. And that's also pretty common back then. As you know, if you ever grew up with a family business, there's often apartments above that. At the Kent Theater, there are apartments above the theater. That's a very common practice that uh, for a family, especially if you own the business, it's like, well, make it two stories, have apartments above where the proprietor or owner can have offices or actually live there. And then you're right where you work. You just have to walk downstairs in the morning. Yes. So he was awakened by this bright light shining on his face. And now that people have heard about some kind of weird person on the rooftops with a light, Alcott runs outside with a revolver and he discovers that the source of the light was coming from a blunt horn on the forehead of a humanoid with bat-like wings. Yes. Now, this is the first time we get more of a description of this thing. He's freaked out, so Dr. Alcott fires five shots at close range with his revolver. No effect, as we like to say, which happens quite a bit and very disturbing and uh, unsettling when there's no effect. After seeing that his shots at close range had no effect, Dr. Alcott fled running away since uh, that would alarm you. Like, okay, not even a flinch, nothing, a screech. Is this thing immortal? What's going on here? Yeah, I want to read this section from the article that a lot of these stories draw on. This is, again, October 4th, 1903 from the Des Moines Daily News. The front page headline says, Town of Van Meter wrought up over a fishy story. (laughs) And then it's continued on another page. It Mm. says, Town of Van Meter badly wrought up. And the subheadings say, Hideous monster alleged to have terrified all posse of citizens shoot. And that's Mm -hmm. referring to Dr. Alcott here. And again, we have confirmed that this is a real guy and he was a physician. And like you said, Forrest, he was in that back room. Listen to this little excerpt that you just described. He is a plucky little fellow and grabbed his gun of immense proportions and ran outside the building where he was confronted with something or other that seemed half human and half animal and yet had great bat-like wings. Mm -hmm. And the light seemed to come from a single blunt horn, as Forrest said, that grew out of its forehead. The doctor fires at the monster five shots at extremely close range, but either missed it, or as Forrest said, no effect. The remaining load he kept for protection, and he ran into the house, barring doors and windows, where he remained until morning. The house probably being his room at his practice. The kryptonite guys, they thought he kept the last bullet for himself in case this thing came after Okay. I don't think he was that desperate. He certainly... Uh, well, we don't know. We don't uh, know. No, we come there. on. That seems a little extreme. But the... Uh, <laughs> no, you got to understand people, uh, you know, look, they're a lot tougher, I would say, <laughs> than folks are today. Certainly not everybody. Not I'm making generalizations here. But yeah. back then, the first thought was to leap to unnatural, superhuman, supernatural, winged creature, cryptid thing. It was just, this thing's very strange. And these people had more of a familiarity with wildlife. Right. Being hunters, farmers, people of the land. You don't have what you're, uh, that was the term I was trying to think in some other interview we just did. Turon, a tourist moron where you go try and scare the bear or hug the moose or get selfies with dingoes. All these yeah. things that people are trying to do nowadays, which I, d- I don't understand other than that uh, you did not uh, grow up or were schooled in any kind of wildlife. This isn't a Disney movie. They aren't your friends. 
do not go pet the sick sea lion. But anyway, these people have better knowledge and common sense than a lot of folks these days. It's just a very strange creature. But here's, when you see something like that, you're not sure what it is. It's what freaked out Griffith on the first night, is that this thing moved unusually fast, as he said, which reminded me of Mothman. In that, remember yeah. the first descriptions, I believe at the cemetery where the construction crew was, is that this thing didn't like, you know, as a giant being, like, look, if it's big, as this thing was described, eight to nine feet tall. Right. Also, the arms were not necessarily attached in some descriptions to the wings like a bat. If you know the anatomy of a bat, their arms are part of the wing structure and their little hands. Their wings are basically skin flaps with arms attached. This thing, they said the wings were not attached to the arms in some descriptions. And imagine something that heavy, like a pterodactyl, having to flap and get enough air moving, like your uh, pre-Wright Brothers twirling umbrella flying machine. You don't have to get a lot of air moving to fly if you're Mothman. They said this thing just shot up. It did flap its wings, but not in conjunction with the amount of movement it had and shooting straight up into the air. That's what's also weird. It's like, it's not like a giant bird. It moves unnaturally as we know it, as you would have to. So when you see something leap across uh, to another building and it doesn't seem to make sense physics-wise, that gets your attention. Also, we've seen that kind of movement described by alien-type creatures. I think at the Zimbabwe school where they were saying like, yeah, they're walking, but not in the required steps it would take to move that quickly or that distance. Right. I'm saying like, I'm walking, but it's like you're floating in a dream kind of thing. You're just kind of making the motion of walking or flying. So anyway, that's kind of what people are seeing here. And in this case, Dr. Alcott, uh, and again, he's the town doctor, unless he's taking his own supply, he's not the town microdoser tripping out on (laughs) ayahuasca. He's, He's pretty sober individual, I would imagine. And so he's saying that, yeah, I shot at this thing. Also, it had a really foul odor. We're going to get to that in a little bit more because that's a very significant part of the description of this creature. Right. So now moving on to October 1st, 1903, we get to that part. We get to the encounter that Clarence Dunn, who was known by his friends as Peter or Pete, Mm -hmm. had. At the same time, now let's talk a little bit about him. Again, super upstanding citizen. He's generally the most widely respected witness, according to Lewis Voss and Nelson. He was a cashier at the Van Meter Bank. He would later be appointed the bank manager in 1935 and stayed in that position until 1947 when he retired in bad help. He was a Knight of Pythias as well, which is another secret fraternal organization. There were apparently just starting these up everywhere. But uh, it's it's secret, not that. uh, It's like, I want to get that impression. It's like people say, oh, the the Masons are very mysterious. It's like, well, they don't spill the beans on their their minutes or what they talk about. But anybody can join and become a Mason if you. That's right. Well, as long as you believe in a higher uh, supreme being. Right. And you you have to be recommended by a a, a member here. And the same thing with the Well, they used to say now, I think they, I remember they did an ad campaign in the, I don't care, it was in the 90s or the early 2000s, which was just to be one. And ask one, I think. I don't know if that's still their policy. Yeah. Of course, all of these fraternal organizations. But I'm not talking about the Masons. Have a, no, I don't know anything I'm saying, about. No, I, what yeah. I'm saying is that it's not a secret where it's like, we know what the monster is. We're letting it out at night to scare the townsfolk. 
No, it's not no, a secret. Right. I just, no, I wasn't secret, making that. Exclusive. Let's no. say somewhat exclusive. You have to be a member. Yes, you have to be a member. Well, do listen to this oath, though, for to become a Knight of Pythias. A member must be at least 18 years of age and must take the following oath. I declare upon honor that I believe in a supreme being, that I am not a professional gambler or unlawfully engaged in the wholesale or retail sale of intoxicating liquors or narcotics, and that I believe in the maintenance of the order and the upholding of constituted authority in the government in which I live. Moreover, I declare upon honor that I am not a communist or fascist, that I do not advocate, nor am I a member of any organization that advocates the overthrow of the government of the country of which I am a citizen by force or violence or other unlawful means, and that I do not seek by force or violence to deny to other persons their rights under the laws of such country. So that's the oath that Pete had to take to become a Knight of Pythias. He was also in the Modern Woodman of America, which was founded by Joseph Cullen Root on January 5th, 1883 in Lyons, Iowa. So that's it's only about 11 years old at this point. Root had operated a number of businesses, including a mercantile establishment, a grain elevator, and two flour mills, just like all these folks, sold insurance and real estate, taught bookkeeping classes, managed a lecture bureau, and practiced law. Root was a member of several fraternal societies throughout the years. He wanted to create an organization that would protect families following the death of a breadwinner, which explains the insurance component of it. Originally, Modern Woodmen had a unique set of membership restrictions and criteria. Religiously, the group was quite open, accepting Jew and Gentile, the Catholic and Protestant, the agnostic and the atheist. However, until the mid-1900s, membership was restricted to white males between the ages of 18 and 45 from the 12 healthiest states, in quotes, which I think was interesting. You can only join if you were from Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, the Dakotas, Nebraska, and Kansas. Hmm. Residents (laughs) of large cities were also disqualified from membership as were those employed in certain professions, such as railway workers, underground miners, gunpowder factory employees, liquor wholesalers and manufacturers, saloon keepers, aeronauts, hmm. sailors of, on the lakes and seas, and professional baseball players. It's just like anything, <laughs> folks. When you start making a list of who can't be in your club, the list just gets longer and longer. So anyway. Hmm. But still, it's a fascinating organization. It's still around today, and now it's a great, big, huge insurance company. So right, that's... Right. Uh, but, you know, back at the time, this was supposedly a badge of honor and respect. You're in this group in spite of, yeah. you know, th- you have to think about the time. Well, I believe one of their main benefits here, and, and not I'm not doing presentism here, the idea is that they took right. care of the widows of, you know, a lot of these jobs are dangerous. Farming is still one of the most dangerous jobs, especially for, yes. for kids on a farm. One yeah. of the most dangerous jobs out there, mining logging, all very dangerous jobs. The men would go out, sometimes they're killed. They would provide for the widows and the family and the children to keep them going. Because a lot of times when that happened, like, well, now you're all in the poor house. Yeah, yeah. So that was like an insurance policy, yeah, to protect them and and keep them uh, fed and uh, housed and all that. Well, yeah, which makes sense. Uh, In addition to all of this, Pete was a Scottish Rite Mason on top Mm -hmm. of all of that other stuff. And, and that YouTube video uh, that you sent me for us, and I can't remember where that was from. Mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, it might have been something with Chad where they interviewed the the older gentleman from uh, Van Meter. I think so. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember now. We'll source it. We'll mm-hmm. get a link to it in the in the show notes. But it was an older resident who had been a, a very, very, very young man who overlapped with some of these folks. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying in that video that Clarence Dunn or Peter Dunn ran Van Meter. He was the guy. Mm-hmm. He was the big boss. So that's, we just want to get that background on him 
because he is going out there on a limb with this next story right. of the encounter with the Van Meter visitor on October 1st of 1903. So let's get into that. So it's cloudy all day that Wednesday. There was a half moon that was still out for this sighting. This mm. was the first one where the moon was still out. Mm-hmm. And Pete, being a banker, he thought a robber was in town. He was like, they're not getting in my bank. Well, that, this is my and, point here is that yeah. people aren't necessarily leaping to... <laughs> Paranormal, right. Yeah, yeah, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, some creature from another planet uh, swooping down on them from Mars or whatever, or something from the bowels of the earth that would be seen in a, uh, in a fantastical, phantasmagoric novel, anything uh, of that sort. It's the most logical thing. Like, no, somebody's around with a lantern trying to rob places. Well, I'm at the bank. I'm responsible for that. I don't want this guy breaking it. Because nowadays, yeah, here in LA especially, we we have the snake burglar. That's the guy who slithers around on his stomach, avoiding motion detectors. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, I'm he's already out of jail. I'm not getting it. But he's out. Yeah, he did, he did like six <laughs> months time serving and he's already out. So okay. uh, after pleading guilty, like 56 uh, felonies. So oh, the idea, though, is that they're thinking, again, it's a small town. Pretty much everybody knows somebody, but maybe there's a carpetbagger from one of the big cities back east. Right. And he's out right. to uh, rob us of our goods. So he is taking night watch here in the bank. And this is... Also, another encounter where it starts to get more interesting from the actions described, and it is a more complete sighting as well. So he marched down to the bank with a shotgun loaded with buckshot Mm -hmm. and decided he was going to put himself on the night watch. Around one in the morning, here we go again. Yeah, it's uh, it, this thing's right on time. Right. He hears a sound outside the building, the east side of the building, that he described as sounding like someone was being strangled to death or possibly taking their last breaths as they were about to die. A strangling, gurgling noise, a guttural... That's not what it sounded like, folks, but uh, imagine something very different that you're not used to hearing outside the window of your place of business. So he's trying to figure out what that sound is, and then from a completely different direction, around the front of the building, through the front door... He got blinded by a light. Here is an excerpt again from the article in the newspaper. The light would move around the room, and he could see a great form of some kind. Then as the light swung back to him once more, he could stand the suspense no longer and fired point blank at the monster, tearing out the glass and part of the sash, and it disappeared as quickly as it appeared. Pete naturally thought he had killed it, but when day dawned, there was not a trace of anything but a broken front. And he sadly thought of the time he shot at a stuffed pelican. But this was not a stuffed pelican, for great three-toed tracks were to be found in the rear of the building, one of which Pete has a plaster cast of. Okay, couple things here. Another part of the description says, as Dunn was monitoring this thing or trying to figure out what it was, uh, where the light was, it came through the window and hit him in the face, the light suddenly shut off and came back on again. And this is what I liked about uh, part of the description here. I believe I got this from an interview with Kevin Lee Nelson, where he describes it was like scanning the room. And it scanned the room, shut off. And then I think that's when Dunn made a commotion. I'm not sure if that's when it shot, but it basically the light came back onto him like the Terminator. (laughs) Just like, bing. Now it's like, who are you? Identify yourself, a intruder alert. And it starts to sound to me like this thing is using it to gain information, 
to scan the threat, which is now Peter Dunn with a shotgun, in the manner that has been described by UFO encounters. Right. Where a beam of light is used to probe, gather information, not just light the way. And now it starts to connect with so many other stories we've done. Is this like Cisco Grove, where the light came on and was scanning the area once you start to make a fire? Yeah. Once you make a commotion, you have some stimulus that it's checking out and trying to figure out what it is. That, to me, is starting to seem like it's not there just to light the way of the out-of-place UPA pterodactyl. It's using it like a probe. Anyway, that just struck me. Uh, more about that later. But yes, he goes outside, and there's some evidence. Three toed tracks, large ones. And he has the wherewithal to make a plaster cast of it. Unfortunately, like the original PGF 16 millimeter film, it's probably in a shoebox somewhere, gathering dust in some attic. No one knows where it is. Yeah, that's such a bummer. Not that anybody would way, believe it uh, anyway. I mean, Stan Gordon has a three-toed goblin <laughs> plaster cast yeah, track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, there's not a lot of things that leave three-toed tracks like that that also would fit the other biological explanations mm -hmm. for this creature. We'll talk about that more in part two. So now as we wrap up the encounter description by Dunn, he has a great quote here because now he's getting a closer observation of this thing that uh, Alcott didn't or wasn't able to because even though the light's shining on him, this thing's backlit now in a way and he can, quote, see some kind of great form in the outline. Right. He gets a sense of shape with this thing as he fired a shotgun at it and this thing vanishes very quickly. So the other thing I like is I wish there was a photo of the blown out window of the bank. I know, I know. Like the torn screen door with the Enfield monster. It's like, at least it's a little something. Or yeah. the screen door that you got with Kelly Hopkinsville, them shooting out the screen window there. There is some evidence here, but yes, there is a plaster cast, which was reported at the time. We don't know where that is. Perhaps it'll be found one day. But it leads to the next night that there is a sighting. And this man is named O.V. White, and he was also awakened by the creature as he slept in his room on the second floor above the hardware store that he owned on Main Street. Yes, he was the co-owner of Fisher & White Hardware and Furniture on Main Street. And Chad Lewis actually found an article showing that White definitely lived in a room above the mm -hmm. store, which adds credibility to him being awakened by this event. And we found Mr. White, too. I wanted to do a little more digging on him. His middle name is Vernon, V-E-R-N-I-N. -I, uh, yeah, I had an Uncle Vernon. That's V-E-R-N-O-N, so mm -hmm. I was surprised to see that. So it's Otto, O-T-T-O, also the name of the main character from Repo Man. Great movie, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> mm. Otto Vernon White, or O.V. White. Hardware merchant his whole life, never married. Mm-hmm. So O.V. White is asleep in the room that he had over the store. He gets waked up by something that sounds like someone rubbing two metal files together. Yeah, a rasping sound just outside his second floor window. So this is either very tall or yeah. uh, something odd. If it happened outside your window and you're on the ground floor, you would, I guess I would assume that it's just somebody fiddling around with some tools. Right. This is on the second floor. 
This is on the second floor. And by the way, folks, this is how crickets and cicadas and a lot of mm. insects make the sounds they That's make. Right. They vibrate their wings against each other and the sounds of the ridges or files on their wings that overlap between them when they're squeezing them together. That's what you hear on, well, not crickets, but on on, on cicadas. On mm-hmm. crickets, I think they use their legs, right? That's uh, the general report. But as I found, yeah. everything that I grew up with and thought that was true about science and nature, turns out uh, there's some report that says I was wrong. Yeah. I know this is how cicadas work. I'm going to be hearing some okay. within the hour here in North There's... Carolina. The wings vibrate back and forth together. So I thought that was interesting that it was like a file sound because that's how a cicada makes its noises. So if this thing is biological, it makes you wonder, you know, are we talking about a bat? Are we talking about an insect? Some cross in between? Paranormal, biological? Yes. You know, that is a great observation about the sound. At first, it sounds guttural, like with the strangling sounds. That sounds like maybe... It's got yeah. gas. Uh, yeah. It drank a huge soda, a, a large Dr. Pepper. It, this sounds maybe more like the wings, that kind of, you know, because where I also heard it, reading about other cryptids, with wings is a leathery flapping sound. Yeah, yeah. Not a feathery sound. Right. But a leathery wing flapping, which is different, you know, flapping your leather. <laughs> just it's slightly different we're just pulling from descriptions that we know of animals we have come into contact with and know about did you say flapping your leather yeah well give you ever you ever wear a leather drover sure you have come on okay uh, there's yes, a there's a picture of right. kevin lee nelson he looks really cool back that this would be 2013 i think uh from that uh, blog yeah. where he's uh he's got a hat yeah he looks like a mysterious man of the corn Oh, uh, nice. okay. Almost a man in black. It would be if there was no light out. Yeah, he'd be a shadow guy. But hey, and when I, in the eighties, uh, everybody in my high school had leather dusters. That's they, what I'm saying. Had, like, dro- from Young Guns. Yeah, yeah, a leather drover, oil skin. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm being facetious here slightly, but the idea is that you are pulling descriptions from what you know, and that is the philosophical point I'm trying to make here. Yeah, observationally, is that we can only describe these things by the terms from our era and experience of the time and what we know. Yeah. Was that really a stubby horn? Or if you got a close look at it, like, oh no, that thing looks like a, a, a Leica lens, you know, with, right. with rings and diopters. And it's more like a right. projector beam lens than a right. stubby horn. Is this, thi- okay, I'm not going to get ahead of myself and declare no, this thing is yeah, a biomechanical, that's part two but part two stuff. I blew it. Come back right. for part two, yes. folks. All okay, right. anyway, just leading you back here, though, with the description, yeah. Scott. First of all, now we're still thinking human intruder. Right. And people are aware all over town because now it's the talk of the town quite literally. So people are aware of this stuff and they're also aware of the time. And like clockwork, this thing is showing up again. And it's right outside the window. So it's not far off out in the woods. This is on Main Street, which is another right. aspect of the story that I love. It's like, <laughs> you don't have to go looking for it. It comes to find you. Yeah, it's coming downtown. So it's it's up high. So there's, again, that's another bird-like feature for protection and as a good angle of attack and as a predatory being, perhaps. It's yeah. up high. It has the tactical advantage. And this is above the hardware store. And here's what's different about... O.V. White. So people are armed now. That's what I'm saying is that whether it works or not, I guarantee if you have the choice as a person (laughs) under threat to have a firearm or not, if you're used to firearms, you're going to want to carry that. Now, we've been in a kind of argument here, friendly with our good friend Marie Mayhew about the effectiveness on Skinwalker Ranch of firearms. And I'm going to tell you, if you're one of the Shermans and you see a 
dire wolf looking thing that stands four and a half feet at the shoulder, you're going to want something. There was some effect. It didn't kill it. But as uh, to their description, a large chunk of meat finally flew off when they, I think when they got the 30-06 rifle out because the 357 had no effect, uh, they shot it and it didn't seem to hurt it. It just walked away, but it did blow off a chunk of flesh, which smelled like a rotting corpse, which is another sign of you're dealing with something that's not natural here. Right. This thing doesn't really even seem to be bothered by it, but O.V. White is a crack shot, apparently. Yes. And he took his shot. And uh, again, so here's the chain of events. Yeah. First, he hears the sound outside, the wings. He grabs his gun and then, not sure this would be my first choice, opens the window, right? Let's well, go you don't want to break the window shooting out of it, sure. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Opens the window. <laughs> right. And when his eyes adjusted to the dark, he sees this huge thing sitting on the crossbeam of a telephone pole just 15 feet away from him. Mm -hmm. And that's not that far away, folks. I mean, your average car is about that length or just a teeny bit longer. So it's like one car length away from him. Yeah, telephone or telegraph pole. I wasn't sure. Yeah, it said telephone. I think it It did. I read read telephone pole a bunch of times, but if people come back at us and say, well, they had had that. They weren't very prominent. As yeah. you know, again, back going back to Velisca for comparison, is that only a, there was a couple of telephones in town. Not everybody had one. Yeah, and Sarah will make this sound like I'm real smart, but in fact, <laughs> I just looked it up, so she'll cut that part out. Oh. The phone was invented in 1876, mm-hmm. so they might have actually been calling them telephone poles at that point. So. Right, because you are on Main Street again, folks. Yeah, you're on Main Street, the businesses, the doctor, you know. So he aimed and took a shot at it, which he said did nothing more than wake it up, and then he was immediately yeah. blinded by that same light that blinded so many others. Then, and this is new, yeah. apparently it emitted some kind of odor that stupefied him, which (laughs) is my favorite word. And as Forrest said in the quote at the top of the show, he remembered no more about it. After being stupefied, this is again, according to the article in the Des Moines Daily News, I'm stupefied every time we have to start an outline for a show like this. So it's one of my favorite things is, you know. (laughs) I look blankly out into space. I'm going back to Kryptonaut again because I I love that show and I love those guys over there. And those guys said this was some kind of lethal fart, which had me literally laughing out loud. <laughs> but but I'm I'm not so sure. You know, it reminds me, and you already mentioned the Mad Gasser Mattoon reminds mm-hmm. me of that. It, uh, it reminds me again of Cisco Grove. We did a series on that or episode on that if you haven't heard it. Lots of other stories, but it, we'll, we'll table some of that for the theories in part two. But I mean, Forrest, what do you think about this odor? You, what, what do you think it might have been? It's from the description that the cryptid then apparently let loose with an odor so pungent or powerful that it knocked out White. It rendered him unconscious as a response. Also, something that shone a light from its chest in some descriptions and also a noxious gas was Spring Hill Jack. Oh, yeah, right. Spring Hill Jack. Exactly. Yeah. Now, yeah. that's not the common description. And then you'll have people bickering like, well, that's not the actual thing. And, you know, description of this and that. And uh, people didn't know or ladies wore their corsets too tight and they were passing out anyway. There's a lot of historical variation with this. And again, this is not that long ago comparatively, 1903. I tend to trust the descriptions as they were accounted for here generally by what people knew at the time. And so he shoots at this thing. It lets out a noxious odor or gas. And yeah, you're right. Again, it sounds just like the Cisco Grove encounter. That took place Friday, September 4th, 1964. And Donald Shrum, who was the bow hunter 
in the tree trying to avoid these strange creatures from outer space said they would emit a gas that rose up into the tree and knocked him out, but wasn't all that effectual. He'd wake up, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later as they were trying to get back up the tree and it would just repeat this process, which was so exhausting to him. But they also emitted some kind of a knockout gas in response. Here, again, we're not really sure what this is yet. And we do know of animals, though, emitting, well, your stink bug, you antagonize it. It releases a foul odor to repel other predator bugs. The brown marmorated stink bug. Currently invading the East Coast used to be the bane (laughs) of my existence at the house my wife and I had in Bucks County, Uh, and now I see them in North Carolina. That's the idea here, is that this thing is taking some cues from nature, except for the light so far, and the movement. So, so far, we're talking about animalistic movements mostly. And Scott and I are going to have a little discussion about the type of movement described. But this commotion, the gunshot essentially, leads to the next encounter eyewitness report because the gunshot had woken up Sidney Gregg, O.V. White's neighbor, who was asleep in his nearby store. Sidney Gregg runs outside because he hears the commotion and he watches in bewilderment as... This creature starts to move due to the being fired upon. This is Autumn from Alberta, Canada. And when I'm not waiting around to be abducted by aliens, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, back to the show. All right, so before we get into the full details of what he saw, I do want to talk a little bit about his background like we've done with the other folks. Oh, sure. I did want to mention that Lewis, Voss, and Nelson, they wrote the following in their book. Uh, We have uncovered little about the life of Sidney Gregg, including his social stature, profession, family life, and community involvement. The main article, referring to the Des Moines article that, that we've also been referencing, listed Mr. Gregg as sleeping in his store, yet the specifics of that store elude us. Nonetheless, it does appear that Mr. Gregg was the proprietor of the store that he occupied, based on the handsome bachelor's photo, which is a picture we also alluded to earlier, which we found, you'll find on our uh, webpage for this as well. It's a picture of the prominent members of the community. He is in that photo, and he does look, as they say, a bit younger than his colleagues, and we'll agree with that. He looks like he's maybe 19 or 20 uh, at best. I was intrigued that they couldn't find anything. And they may have since, we haven't talked to Lewis Foster Nelson. This book was 10 years ago. They may know a whole lot more about him now, but we were able to find some information, or I was, on who I'm pretty sure Sidney Gregg was. Uh, I found on Ancestry a gentleman named C.S. Gregg, which I think the first name was Cyrus, maybe Cyrus Sidney Gregg. Hmm. And his mother was A.O. Gregg, which was short for Ada or Adelia Hortensia, or her maiden name was Brown. And the father was Wesley Gregg, but I think the mother was widowed pretty early on. But what's fascinating about this is if you remember when Uli Griffith first saw the creature, he saw it on the roof of the Mather and Gregg building. Right, right. So there's this implication that Gregg owns part of that building, but he's a pretty young age for that. So that's something that I'm curious about. Mm-hmm. When It's another question for the local historians there that we're trying to get information from. And Lewis Foss and Nelson say they're they're not sure what businesses were inside there, but they do think that he was a proprietor. We couldn't find anything about his particular store, but I think it's curious that he's so young and possibly linked to having his own store at that point. Now, so they may have had fewer resources back in mm-hmm. 2013 than we have now, 
But I did find some stuff on this. So I, I did want to uh, explain this a little bit about Sidney Gregg so we can really understand all the players. And it, it's often difficult to connect witnesses to real backgrounds. So we feel like it's important to do this kind of stuff. So Cyrus Sidney, or C.S. Gregg, was born in April 1884, about 40 miles southeast of Van Meter, just south of Des Moines, in a town called Lincoln, or uh, which is connected to Indianola, Iowa. That would have made him 19 when the Van Meter visitor showed up. Mm -hmm. And so that tracks with this much younger image from that time period, and if this is the right person that I found. In 1900, three years before the Van Meter visitor sighting, and at 16, he was a farm laborer working on a farm belonging to the Bidding family, B-I-T-T-I-N-G, in Lincoln. In 1901, on a census, he was listed as a student living with his mother, who would have been 55 at that time, so that would have made her 37 when he was born, which I think mm-hmm. is a little old to be having kids. Um, so back I, I want to, yeah. yeah, for back then, I did want to share the obituary that we found for this person who I think is our person. This is an obituary from the uh, Billings Gazette in Billings, Montana. Sydney, a former Richland County resident, Cyrus Sydney Gregg, 75, died at his home in Kent, Washington. This is from 1958, folks. Mr. Gregg was born in Indianola, Iowa, April 3rd, 1883. When a young man, he went to Jamestown, North Dakota, and worked as a railway mail clerk there. In 1912, he homesteaded near Lambert, and he married Mary E. McCulloch, a teacher. In 1940, they went to Fort Peck, where he was employed on the Fort Peck Dam for several years, and from there to Kent. Surviving are his wife and two sons. So, by the time he passed away, 15 grandchildren. I'm pretty sure this is our guy. I'm pretty mm. sure this is the Sidney Gregg. It doesn't mention his time in Van Meter, but we were also able to confirm on another census that he absolutely lived in Van Meter in 1905. So there's okay. no reason not to think yeah. for a second that this is the guy, that this is our guy. Mm-hmm. But there's no mention of him having his own business in Van Meter, and that's the part that confuses me. So either he's not our guy or there's something weird about the details with that store. Maybe he was just working there, or maybe the name Greg on the building was a relative, and he had a little Nepo action happening. I'm not <laughs> sure. Possibly, but you know what? My uh, grandfather, as the story goes, the one I just mentioned earlier, who put the uh, farm implements together, assembled them right. with his stepfather, he owned his own gas station about 19 or 20 years old. Yeah. Before he went into World War II, and he had my dad. So, uh, yeah, doing yeah. Uh, 10 times the amount of uh, life experience things than I was doing even now. And so, But the idea here is, though, it, he saved his money, and you could do things like that if you were cautious about it. And he had three or four employees. And in that time, right. of, uh, whether it be, you know, 1939, uh, at that time with a gas station, and it was just like, as he described it, in Back to the Future, where five guys run out and one cleans your windshield, the other one checks the air pressure in your tires, one checks your oil level, and that's service that was expected back then. And that's the kind of gas station he ran, and he was a mechanic as well. And so it wasn't that unusual that you could do that. And people, of course, accomplished, I think, more at a younger age. Life expectancy wasn't quite as long. And I think if you were successful, they gave you more credit for it. Exactly. And you had to get moving earlier in life because you weren't going to be on the earth as long. And then the other thing I think is happening is that from a Main Street business kind of standpoint, in a small town like this, there's only five or six business models. You know, people yeah. are are doing one of five or six things and, and nothing was stopping people from opening two or three different versions of the same thing 
and trying to use competition to figure out who made it. So, you know, it could be that C.S. Gregg or Sidney Gregg had a little store that didn't work out or it did work out and he mm-hmm. cashed out of it or he sold his partnership in it to somebody else. Or maybe it didn't have a lot of sales. He tried it for a year or two. He ran out of money. And that's when he moved to Nebraska where he met his wife and went on to do more. So I, I'd be curious actually to talk to his family mm-hmm. about the family history and if and if he was connected to that. But that's something that would take a, a lot more time than we had here in the lead up to this. But maybe that's something that we'll do in the background. But coming back around to the shot that O.V. White fired, when he shot at this thing on the telephone pole, that shot woke Sydney up in his store. He was sleeping in his store. Everyone sleeps in their store <laughs> or their doctor's office. Like, hey. It's not like sleeping at the Ace Hardware store back in the in the tent section if there's camping gear. Yeah, like, right, there's, right. No, there's this no, pretty I know. Today. They, they yeah. have rooms. Yes, yeah. I know. I know. They're, they're joke, upstairs. Right. Although it wouldn't be, especially if you're a bachelor, that's not that uncommon, even if it was just an office. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. That you got a cot in there and it wasn't, it's not such a big deal to sleep there. Like I said, you're already there at, in the morning. You don't, you don't That's you don't right. Have to and if somebody comes in early, work. it definitely makes sense too with the doctor because, you know, people get hurt That's in the middle true. of the night. Yeah. You got to, so, you're already um, there at the office. Which again requires you to be a very sober individual because anything could happen at any time. Look, there's certainly no shortage of the the trope of the uh, the old yeah. drunk doctor or the one who's <laughs> the one who's been sampling his tinctures of uh, various uh, sedatives. But in this case, the picture that keeps being painted here, especially from the descriptions, is that this is something that was taken seriously at the time by the townsfolk because the people coming forward describing these things were so respected and notable and prominent in town, business leaders. And that's why this roused so much consternation, fear, trepidation, to figure out what was going on here. But with O.V. White's description, we do get more behavioral documentation. Right. So when he gets up after the shot and he looks out and he sees this thing coming down the telephone pole using its beak to descend like a parrot would, which coming, I thought was really interesting because everybody yeah. who's seen a bird lower itself down a thing in its cage or yeah. in, in a natural habitat and it will grab with its beak and lower its two feet down because it doesn't have hands. Well, it, I've, uh, I've had two cockatiels in my life and yeah, they do that and that's how they, they climb up. They use the beak and they'll kind of slide yeah. down and you can look at any uh, cute, funny parrot video on Instagram right now and see the same behavior, but that's what this thing is doing. Some yeah. descriptions, I swear I have read, said that it had more human-like arms on it. Right. See, I'm wondering about, we got to figure out, we got to source those because a mm-hmm. lot of those might be coming from those articles that Lewis Voss and Nelson said started just taking the story and running with it. That's true. So like, yeah. it's for me, if it's not in that original story, which is where this information comes from, it's a little bit more dubious. Right. Well, but, well so, we got right, to so talk to Greg. Uh, we will talk about that <laughs> and we'll talk about that in part two more. But so he says it comes down the pole like a parrot would. Then he said it stood up on the ground and, quote, flapped its great featherless wings, end quote. Mm-hmm. And it stood at least eight feet high, and he saw the light on its head. Yeah, He said the light was like an electric searchlight. Right. He says it then hopped around like a kangaroo, which, by the way, bats have been known to do this. I'll point that out. Then the article actually says, quote, when the fast mail came tearing through town, and I'm assuming this is a carriage with express mail on it. I'm not sure what fast mail means in this case, but that's what I think mm-hmm, it is mm-hmm. that might come through late at night, maybe just passing through on the way to another town, or maybe that's a train at this point. Mm. I bet it's a train. 
Possibly. Yeah, you know what? It's a train. I bet it's a train that didn't stop. So when the fast mail came tearing through town, it crouched as if to spring, but ran on all four feet with wings extended and sailed away. Then Greg remembered he had a gun, but it was too late to shoot. And he watched it sail away toward the old coal mine. Okay, now we're talking four limbs, not like a bird. Maybe more like a bat, but again, descriptions that the arms or hands were not attached. Where are they attached? That's our big question. Where is it attached? Because it does talk about or describe, is this this thing like the winged demon in Midnight Mass? Some kind of demonic ancient Ifrit that's more like a human with giant wings that almost kind of ceremonially flaps them to get around. This thing has some animal behaviors. So again, folks, yes, we're taking this as something being real, just for the sake of argument at this point, before we get into a complete hoax by the town fathers, that this thing is displaying some kind of animalistic behavior, but also a hybridization of other biomechanical behaviors. Because the other thing I liked about this is, yes, it has a light on its forehead, at least, emanating from something, some kind of appendage that is described by Greg as being as bright as an electric headlight. And the other thing is that when you say searchlight, this thing is also using it like it was searching for something. Yeah. Not just seeing around or using it, you know, straight ahead to light up its way. To look at something, yeah. To look at something. It's using it like it's gathering information. Also, it's not as if people would say, well, that's just bioluminescence. Yeah. Because that seems to be a different thing where it would either all glow, parts of it would glow. This seems very focused and very bright. Now, I, you can debate how bright bioluminescent ability in an organism is and how focused it can be. But this seems like, again, we're debating things that are possibly supernatural here. I, it doesn't make much sense or you don't have many uh, baselines to judge this on. We're just going with the descriptions. But it, it sounds like this thing, whatever it has, is either enormously powerful for a purely biological creature or it has some biomechanical assistance or it's entirely mechanical. Some things to consider. But the fact that it comes down and behaves, uh, it comes down the pole like a parrot climbing and sliding down the uh, the cage bars is pretty interesting. And then this thing stands and then it's more like a humanoid when it stands. And by the way, earlier when you said, you know, that you had heard that it flew sort of very supernaturally or almost in a paranormal way, like the Mothman, which we know did that. We know he just shot up, gravity be damned, whatever. This sounds to me a little bit more like, well, it's running, it's trying to get speed, and then the wings go. It's like a much more traditional takeoff. I mean, here's the thing. We we are going by the most original source we can, uh, which would be that article, because I think that's about where, other than people's descriptions to each other, which as far as we know yet have not been found in any family diaries, it was probably just passed down orally. And I'm sure as the generations passed, and it's funny, that's all generations are like that. It's the farmer that owns the land where the mine is going to be or was, does believe, I would say, as Chad Lewis describes, thinks that there's something creepy about that little patch of land there. Something's yeah. very disturbing about it. And his son just laughs it off. It's like, oh, dad, 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 we just call that the brickyards. And that's a good place for these campfire stories. And, you know, but we don't believe that stuff. I think the generations after that, 
you tend not to believe it as much because you don't see any evidence of it. It sounds outrageous. And, you know, right. great grandpa. Yeah, yeah. like to pull your leg and tell tall yeah. tales and all that. So that's just natural human behavior about how we approach these things because the opposite, the reality, if this was true, is pretty unsettling. That <laughs> something came out of the ground and freaked people out. So in this case, though, it is behaving strangely in ways that they, they can describe and counter. And that's what's happening. Also, the local high school teacher had seen it as well in an account that I read and described it as something like an antediluvian monster. Oh, yes, that's right. Meaning that too, yeah. a mystical creature, perhaps, before the Great Flood. Yeah. The times of the Nephilim. And uh, half uh, human uh, hybrid monsters and, and strange beasts roam the land. Giants, all manner of legendary creatures that this is a holdover, a leftover. And that's what it's starting to seem like to me when I read some of these accounts. And the last thing I'll say about Greg's description here is that, like you said, it was hopping like a kangaroo, which also reminded me of some of the motion by the Enfield monster from some reports. Yes. Well, people thought it was an escaped kangaroo. <laughs> right. They, That's right. And the guy said like, no, no, I, I've had a pet kangaroo. And <laughs> it was not like that. But I can see where you thought that was the third leg. But to end Greg's description here, the beast lingered for a moment and then took off flying towards the coal mine on the edge of town. It's now 1 a.m. in a continuous series of events. So it's technically the morning of Friday, October 2nd, 1903. And just after Sidney Gregg saw this thing flying toward the coal mine, J.L. Platt Jr., one of the big bosses at the neighboring brick or tile plant that we mentioned earlier, heard a noise over near the mine, which was by now abandoned. So we've got a continuous trail of evidence here all the way back from when Uly Griffith first saw this thing, or U.G. Griffith. People are starting to track this thing. That's also important. The descriptions, the encounters, the anecdotes are tracking, as they say. So Platt heads over to the abandoned mine opening and heard a noise he described as Satan and a regiment of imps coming forth for battle. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on the Van Meter Monster. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid Astonishing Junk Drawer at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi, I'm C-L-A-R-E. J-I-M. Hi, my name is spelled galaxy-wide. My last name, P-E-Y. Perpetuity. Hi. I'm Autumn Mornchuk. D is in dog. T-O-N. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request 
to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>